Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Sir David King, founder and chair of the Center for Climate Repair at Cambridge University. Uh, Sir David King has a long and prestigious career, best known for his work on science advice and communication, in particular when he was the UK's chief scientific advisor. Now, he's had an important role to play in the development of the UK's climate policy and as well as international policy, which we talk about throughout this episode. He also talks about the work of this new effort he's started, the Centre for Climate Repair and the Climate Crisis Advisory Group. Over this conversation, we talk about the challenges or they're aiming to tackle with that group, the reduction of emissions and the challenges there and opportunities, removals, removing CO2 from the atmosphere and dealing with methane, and refreezing the Arctic, slightly more controversial proposal that they're also looking into at that centre. I found Sir David's insights to be rewarding. He has a long career, so we were able to look back not just at the formation of climate policy in the UK and internationally, but he offers an insightful insider's view of how that process occurred in the UK. And at the same time, he continues to uh, develop and implement a vision for the future of reducing climate change and its impacts through his work at the Center for Climate Repair at Cambridge. And yeah, I think you'll enjoy this episode. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider rating or reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. This will help our podcast get found. And if you're enjoying it, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, There's a lot of editing, producing, and other work that goes on behind the scenes. And that's very time consuming. Uh, With your help, we can pay for professional support, which will help make this podcast sustainable for us in the long run. Uh, We don't want to have ads in these podcasts. So if you can go to patreon.com slash challenging climate and chip in a few dollars or pounds a month, that will help support the show and make it sustainable. We are joined by Sir David King, who is the founder and chair of the Centre for Climate Repair at the Cambridge University. Previously, he held the position of permanent special representative for climate change from September 2013 to March 2017 in the UK. He is a fellow of several prestigious organisations, including the Royal Society, the Royal Society of Chemistry, the Institute of Physics, uh, among others. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Peter. Now, you're perhaps best known for your role as the UK's uh, chief scientific advisor in the Labour government. But before that, you were a professor of chemistry. How did you get interested in chemistry? And how did you transition from a scientific career into science policy? How I got interested in chemistry is a very long story, which you don't want to hear, I don't think. But I, I, I've always been very curious about how the world works. And I, I now know, you know, from the age of three or four, I was often in trouble because of, for example, apparently cutting up a guinea pig to see how it worked. Now, I believe the guinea pig was dead, but there we go. The real thing was, uh, what, what was, what were the subjects I most enjoyed at school? And then what were the opportunities at university? And I, I was in South Africa, went to University of Witwatersrand, and was very, very fortunate to have a, a series of extremely good lecturers. I did physics, chemistry, 
and mathematics and applied mathematics in the first year, but then selected. And we just had some wonderful lecturers in chemical physics, physical chemistry, and that's really what drew me into that area. Um, and of course, that means that uh, for most of my life, until I went into government uh, very nearly 60, I was uh, just focused on my work on solid surfaces, publishing papers, getting high citations, all of the stuff that academics uh, rate very highly. And it turned out I, I got rated pretty highly. So that's when I was headhunted to join the Blair government in the year 2000. term science advisor sounds clear and logical, I think, to the average listener of this broadcast. Could you say a little bit about what a science advisor, at least in the UK, actually does on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis? So, so the first thing to say is there are many misunderstandings about this. This isn't a one-person job. The chief scientific advisor, I was also head of the government office for science, and the government office for science is has been accumulating a position since the post was first developed by Churchill during the Second World War. Really, most people are a bit astonished at the sort of budget that I had at my disposal, the number of staff I had at my disposal. And I am a very collaborative person, and uh, I managed to appoint a large number of new staff into the Government Office for Science. And we developed a whole range of New approaches, in particular, I would focus on one piece of work that I developed extensively, which is the foresight program in government. And the foresight program in government is looking way beyond the normal government tenure sort of view of the future, three, four years. Uh, this is looking uh, 80 to 100 years into the future. I produced only eight foresight reports in eight years. Each report on average, well, experts between 110 and 340 on each project. And these were experts pulled in largely from the UK, but also from the rest of the world. For example, we produced a report on infectious diseases published in 2006. If you go to that website, you will find that we predicted that uh, an epidemic of the kind that has just happened would occur before 2030. And this was all based on an analysis of the chances of a new virus forming in a wild animal and a, that wild animal being in close contact with human beings. And that, that virus would have to mutate so that it could live in the human body. And all of that probabilities was worked out. We told the government what they should do. And the government at the time put into hospitals around the country all the equipment that we didn't have in 2020. What happened? 2010 austerity measures and all of that stuff was deemed to be too chancy an investment. I think the piece of work that I'm most proud of was analyzing out to 2018, and this was published in 2003, what the risks to the United Kingdom were from climate change. And that report was focused on flooding. We are an island nation, sea levels rising is our biggest challenge. And so we set about just using the best Met Office calculations 
on what the world would look like in 2080 in terms of sea levels, and then imposing it on the UK to see how this would impact on us. Our foresight program built scenarios into the future, four scenarios, something that looked quite attractive on the one hand and something that looked awful on the other hand. And the idea was to persuade government ministers to take appropriate actions that would avoid the worst case scenario. And uh, at that time, the, the appropriate action was, yes, the UK should lead the way on reducing its emissions. But of course, we also said, and the rest of the world needs to follow. And the follow-up to that program, very directly, because Blair got me to speak in the, the House of Commons and the House of Lords about this. I was uh, uh, given many, many questions. And the cabinet took a full report from me, and that's when the British government decided to really lead the world on climate change. We we created at that time 165 climate attaches in our embassies around the world, and no other government had any. And when I moved across to the Foreign Office uh, as, as climate envoy leading the climate negotiations from the Foreign Office, uh, this was now Prime Minister Cameron, and he created a budget that amounted to £9.2 billion for the negotiations, right? What was that budget used for? It was to bring developing and least developed countries on board with us. And of course, we had deep pockets, and so people were very interested to talk to us. So... The upshot of these foresight programs really had enormous ramifications, easily the most important piece of work that I led. And I would say the British foresight program at that time was world leading. We picked up from the work of the RAND Corporation in the United States, which was then the leading foresight group. But I think we took it many steps further. As a reference point for listeners, a couple episodes ago, we had uh, Rob Limpert from the Rand Corporation on, and we spoke a bit about scenarios and their role in climate change. And we'll re we will return to climate change in just a moment. I have a couple of questions and thoughts related to science advice more generally. Certainly in a democracy, the line between science advisor to the government and science communicator is not a sharp, stink line. A science advisor necessarily has a has a public role. How did you see your role balancing out speaking to the government versus speaking to the public? This is a very, very important question, Jesse, because I, I took the role as chief scientific advisor with Tony Blair on a clear understanding. And this was a very, very difficult understanding for the prime minister and the cabinet to accept, which was, if I give my advice into government... I have to be free to tell the public what advice I've given on a particular issue. I might not do that right away. I might give the government a few months to, to ponder and act, but I will in the end, if asked, always say what advice I gave, and even if it's contrary to the political decisions. I'm only an advisor, I said, and I don't expect you always to follow. But in order to maintain the trust of the public, and the trust of the cabinet, I had to balance on this tightrope. That was a critically important uh, part of my operation. And I mean, to be honest, Blair, 
accepted it, even though there were one or two occasions when it created difficulties for him, but he accepted it in very good faith. And I have to tell you that um, I had an enormously productive time working with Tony Blair. But the important thing here is that, for example, foot and mouth disease epidemic 2001, which was my first big crisis, I sat there and told Blair that the then Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Fisheries was not getting this under control for very good reasons. They had simply dusted out the lessons learned from the, the, the epidemic in 1966. The world has changed since 1966. And in particular, this epidemic was not spread in the air as that epidemic was, but it was spread from animal to animal and therefore from farm to neighboring farm. And so we put forward a completely new uh, control procedure, uh, which was if a farm goes down with the epidemic and it's tested positive and that is checked uh, and it is indeed positive, take out not just the animals on that farm, but all the animals on the neighboring farms. And then you, you create a barren circle of animals around the initial outbreak and you stop the outbreak. And indeed, when, when that began to happen, we went from exponential growth in the number of farms per day, and we were heading towards half the animals in the UK being culled, and to exponential decay. It just happened as soon as we introduced that policy. So I think there were two things about this. It was frantic. I was meeting the Prime Minister every morning for about three months. I was traveling around the country in a helicopter supervising, seeing that everyone was operating this process. I was meeting the group of science advisors, epidemiologists, etc., that I had put together every day. This was a hectic period of time, and it was also energizing in every possible way because I, I had the trust of the cabinet. They were heading towards an election in that year, and I think this is the first time ever that the election date was chosen by a prime minister on the basis of a graphical output of my expectation of how the epidemic would proceed. He moved it from May the 6th, when we would be not far off the peak, to June the 5th, when it looked as if we were practically at zero. And it was, you know, just a, a wonderful thing to have the trust of the cabinet in that way. Suddenly there was a belief that science actually can work like this in real time. However, it was, it, it was uncomfortable because I need to sleep. You know, there, there, there was a, there, uh, there's a problem with working at that rate. And so I also persuaded the Prime Minister and the Cabinet that we needed a bunch of chief scientific advisors, chief scientific advisors in every uh, department. And so that is where we are now. It's taken quite a few years. There were departments that resisted that. But uh, very quickly, we got to the point where every department has a chief scientific advisor. It is fully understood that this is an important role. However, the business of being open, honest, and and trustworthy with both public and cabinet, I think has been lost over the years. There's a couple of things that come up from that. 
there's a very different timescale to a disease outbreak like foot and mouth, where the projections are made and then they're realized in the course of weeks and actions are taken and the consequences are revealed straight away. And climate change, where it's a lot more slow, you know, you've got these 80 year projections, these 100 year projections and costly actions today locally are going to lead to global benefits sometime down the way. Do you think, how, how, how do you think, because I know the UK has been a world leader in some respects, how do you think things would have looked differently if there hadn't been the foot and mouth outbreak and there hadn't been the success in managing it? Would that have changed the course of UK climate politics? I think it would have changed the course of history, frankly. Right? I, th- I think, for you know, I'm saying this because I don't think that without what I've just described, that gaining the trust of the cabinet, I could possibly have got through with the appointment of 165 climate attaches and the cost associated with that. Every ambassador was told this is our key problem and we need focus on this. So I I think in the run-up to the meeting in Paris, the COP meeting in 2015, in two years I made 96 official country visits. And that sounds like one hell of a challenge over two years, but it was all eased up because the ambassadors and the um, the climate attaches prepared the ground. So we went straight into ministerial meetings. We went straight into all of the things that we needed to do. And so the visits were really quite short. Um, so I think I th- I'm going to say, I don't think that without the British leadership effort, from 2003 till about 2010, I don't think without that, we would have got that agreement in Paris. It's a little bit before my time. I mean, I started working on climate science in 2009. So it's a little before when I started getting to this. But my sense was that the fourth assessment report, which is around 2007 by the, the IPCC, was like a bit of a turning point that it became a, a bit more serious. It sounds like your effort in 2003 was a bit before that. Was this getting taken seriously elsewhere in a way that would have taken off in the absence of the UK? I mean, given that the, I presume the UK isn't wholly responsible for driving the, the shift in, in seriousness in this. Our biggest ally in that uh, run-up to 2008-9, that period when you became involved heavily, uh, I think our biggest ally was Germany. Angela Merkel was uh, very committed at that time to climate change. And uh, she did form an alliance with the Green Party. uh, And and that was essential to her maintaining her uh, position as Chancellor. Um, It's it's a shame that in later years, Germany dropped away from that position. And that was all to do with uh, the, uh, the nuclear problem them switching off nuclear energy and then relying on coal. So Germany went from being together with Britain, absolutely world leader, not in the negotiations, but certainly in German actions at home. And so that was one. But let me put it the other way around. We have totally lacked leadership from the United States on this issue. And this is really why we're in this terrible place now. And I I really think that we don't have any time left now. We we have to take uh, really extreme actions to avoid having no manageable future for humanity. So I think 
I put it down to the following. If you go back to all global decisions made since 1946-47, they were all led by the United States. Then we come to climate change, and we have this amazingly powerful coal, oil, and gas lobby in the United States who somehow have senators and congressmen, frankly, in their pockets. And so no governing office in the United King in the United States, and by this I mean Democrat or Republican, have had a majority in Senate and Congress that would carry them through to real leadership. And that is that is such a difficult thing because if the if the world is not led by the United States, we become sort of rudderless. Uh, and it was worse than that, of course. You go along to the COP meetings. By the way, those COP meetings are a nightmare. The, the average number of negotiators per country is about 20. You multiply 20 by 195 and you're close to 4,000. 4,000 people trying to negotiate together? That's why I went on my bilateral meetings country by country because it's, uh, it, it's, it's close to being a circus with massive speeches being repeated year after year by the similar parties and very little understanding of opposing a common enemy, which is climate change. So it, it, the United States would arrive with, arrive with 150 official negotiators. What were they doing? Spending all their time going to other negotiating teams, persuading them not to do anything. And that, that was extremely disheartening. So I think, I mean, who's in the leadership today in terms of actions achieved already? I would say the European Union, way ahead of the United States. And the United States is really one of the laggards, together with Australia, and maybe I would even throw uh, uh, Brazil into that. Uh, but I, I think going forward in time, we have to pull together in a way that we've never done before. And, and the reason I say that is because right now we all know deep and rapid emissions reduction is without question demanded of all countries. But it can't happen overnight, and it shouldn't happen overnight. That would be chaotic. And so we have to have a managed withdrawal from fossil fuels into a cleaner world. What does a managed withdrawal look like? It looks like, to me, the United Nations setting up the equivalent of a Security Council who can speak for the world and are given that right by the United Nations, can speak for the world, and each country then contributing towards this withdrawal. We're talking about having a carbon budget. Now, I don't believe we can afford to put another ton of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, but we're going to do it. We've got a carbon budget. I say it's a deficit budget, right? We're going to make the situation more difficult. We have to remove more greenhouse gases at scale because we're still putting the stuff up there, but we have to do that. We need an ordered and, and really this is the difficult thing, just withdrawal from fossil fuels. What do we do with countries like Nigeria and Venezuela that will suffer economic losses when they no longer is an oil and gas market? How do we help countries in the developing world and the least developed world 
to make the transition so that as their economies grow, they don't have later to make a more expensive transition. <coughs> so I think that would be my ideal world, that, that we have this led by a smaller group. And within that smaller group, let me say it's got to be representative. Who are the people of the world least represented in any of these discussions? It's the indigenous people, the Sami and Inuit people of the north, the people of Australia, the people in the forests, the people who for thousands of years have lived with the natural world, recognizing that the ecosystems around there are their well-being. They cannot do without their ecosystems. And so we've got to bring in representatives of the indigenous people and learn from them how we respect our ecosystems. The, the true way forward requires a cultural transition. We need to understand that our ecosystems and our human well-being are hand in hand. We are not apart from nature as we have tended to believe for 2000 years. We are a part of nature. Right? We, we really belong and we have to nurture it. There are several religions or philosophies that I admire from the past. Uh, the, in uh, Buddhism, uh, in Taoism uh, uh, from China, we, we know that there is enormous respect. We, we tend to laugh at the Chinese saying, this is the year of the sparrow or whatever. But they give all of the key parts of their animal kingdom a year, and they're given respect in that way. We have nothing in our philosophy in the West that reflects this critical importance. So what I'm saying is we've got a big transition to make culturally as well as technologically. You spoke of the difficulty of negotiations among 195 countries. And I've heard you talk elsewhere about the importance of the fact that these countries are not symmetrical. Some countries have much higher emissions than others. Some countries have more or less ease and cost of transitioning away from reliance upon fossil fuels. Are there ways that international conversations, negotiations, and climate policy can be led by a smaller group of countries, a subset of those 195? Absolutely. I think this might be the way forward. If we can we find an example of this? Well, the example is Mission Innovation. So Mission Innovation is a program where 25 countries have come together, their heads of governments all stood under a Mission Innovation banner on the first day of COP26, COP21, but outside the negotiations. They volunteered to stand under Mission Innovation and say, we will spend $30 billion a year between us on all of the technologies we need in the post-fossil fuel world. And they are now delivering that, and they've promised to deliver more, 40 to 45 billion by 2025. So this is a program of work that is going on well. 
I wish that Mission Innovation could have the equivalent of a World Economic Forum every year to bring together entrepreneurs, scientists, all of those who can feed off this program of work. That, I think, has got to happen. And that was, by the way, I was the original thinker behind Mission Innovation. And the, the whole point here is, if 25 nations, and they represent about 80% of global GDP, if they could come together, it includes China, India, the United States, Europe, etc. If, uh, if they could come together and commit, as you've just said, to a program of work in which we make that withdrawal from fossil fuels happen, it would need to be oiled with a lot of money. We promised, and Peter will remember this, in 2008, and it was confirmed in 2009, $100 billion a year to go from the wealthy to the poorer countries, and never delivered. This year, I think it's about $22.4 billion in, in the year, and I'm, I'm quoting the Oxfam figure there, which is much closer to reality than any of the other figures saying we're anything close to $90 billion. Uh, the $100 billion a year, when, when we had this uh, uh, COVID outbreak, the nations of the world got together to spend trillions of dollars on vaccines. And it seems to me, Jesse, that is the response to what you're saying now. We need to understand this is a crisis. And we need to be able to use our resources to dig ourselves out of the crisis. It's not as if we haven't got the resources. And that's what I'm saying about COVID. We proved that. I think a smaller group, but one has to be very, very careful that we then include, as I say, people representing uh, the, the unrepresented. Uh, and I'm particularly keen to to foster the notion of the uh, indigenous people. Um, and all of this comes from, I, I set up a climate crisis advisory group. And again, this is just 15 people from 11 countries. And the climate crisis advisory group has, we've just put out our seventh report, and we've only been going about 10 months now. We have a, a significant number of IPCC authors within that group of 15, but we can respond to global situations in a very agile way. And our reports are extremely topical. And we're explaining, for example, the extreme weather events occurring around the Northern Hemisphere last summer were all driven by what's happened in one part of the world, the Arctic Circle. That tipping point appears to have gone, it's tipped. The Arctic Circle region is now heating up at four times the rate of the rest of the planet because the Blue Sea is exposed to sunlight during three months of the year, the polar summer. And as a result of that, the atmosphere above that is warming up and then the land masses around, including the permafrost region are warming. Why is this potentially disastrous? Greenland is sitting there in that warm air. And as all the ice melts, sea levels globally will rise by about seven meters. But also the permafrost has an enormous amount of methane. We don't know how much, but it's quite possible that a rapid release of the methane would result in temperature rises of 
5 to 10 degrees centigrade even. This is all end game from one part of the world for the whole planet. So I think we need to understand the importance of getting a small group of nations that can work together, have the finance, and have the understanding of the nations not fully represented within that group. So I want to go um, back back a minute to I mean, what you're saying, you're, you're, this organization or this this effort, this, this focus on innovation with a small number of countries has been quite successful and is a, a productive way forward. And, I, and it's worth thinking, I, I think, that you know, the Paris Agreement is also structured differently from previous climate efforts. It was focused on you know, getting people to coordinate their efforts to cut emissions rather than dividing up a limited pie and trying to argue over who has which contribution. Did did climate policy, international climate policy, get off on the wrong foot by sort of having, in a sense, a you know, a specific framing of the problem where there's only so much CO2 and it needs to be divided up? Was that you know scientifically justified, but politically infeasible? Did we did we go in the wrong way when we started working on climate policy? So you're talking about the Kyoto Protocol, which was set up in exactly the way you've described, and it was idealized by scientists who didn't have a real understanding of uh, diplomacy and politics. So I, I think you're quite right to point that out. That caused a very long delay. However, I can remember when Blair sent me out to the White House in 2001, shortly after the election of uh, Bush Jr. And that was my big pushback. Believe it or not, oh no, the climate change process uh, under Kyoto is is faulty. We can't possibly be told by the rest of the world that the United States has to do this, that, and the other. It has to be voluntary processes. And to be honest, I don't believe that. I think that uh, the the Bush regime was very much in hoc to the uh, fossil fuel lobby. But I, and that became clear as time went on. But I think it was a faulty process. Um, and you know what really happened was that um, Britain and Europe, following that, 2003, 2004, when we went into the cap and trade process across Europe, not successful at first, but we all started going down a path that was different from Kyoto. Europe was saying, we we will do what we want to do. We understand there's a big problem. And if we end up leading the way, all the better. So this was very different from Kyoto itself. So even before 2015. But the key to getting an agreement to 2015 was also creating a weak point in the agreement. And that is that we had to say each country must volunteer its own commitment to reduce emissions. No country can be told by the United Nations what to do. And why was that? Because the American president could deem a given policy for the United States on climate change, but could not accept an international agreement telling him what to do. He would need a Congress and Senate behind him to do that. And for that reason, we weakened the agreement and every nation was simply asked to make their own commitment to try to meet this global problem. So we we massively weakened it. 
there is a major problem in in the democratic system. I'm a, I'm a Democrat, so I'm not being critical of this, but look at what happened in Brazil. I worked very closely with President Lula in that time when I was chief scientific advisor in particular. He invited me out to Brazil. That, that was him wanting to meet me. And I took a team of scientists out to uh, Brazil, to Manaus, to work in the forests. And those people are still working there. I took, I think, 12 leading scientists from Britain. And we funded the work to, to build uh, towers across the uh, Amazon forests so that we could monitor carbon dioxide levels and so on, but also observe logging so we could inform the government before they could pick it up by satellite that loggers were beginning to move into an area. And Lula was very determined to see that Brazil took a leadership on managing its forests, etc. Bolsonaro is in just the other frame. So then we get a leader who comes in and simply ignores any of the agreements that uh, a previous leader committed uh, Brazil to. So we do have problems. We have to work with that democratic situation in, from country to country. And that's why I think we need this overriding smaller group to, to lead the way on how we can manage the process, the, the point that Jesse was raising. So the US is a great example of a country that's, that's flipped back and forward on, on climate change. And the UK is very different. I mean, we have in a way, I think, one of the leading sets of climate policy and quite a lot of success in terms of cutting emissions, like with the UK Climate Change Act. Why is it that it hasn't become as partisan an issue in the UK and perhaps elsewhere? Um, it doesn't seem inevitable that that would be the case. We are the only country in the, in the world with all party agreement, the only democratic country in the world with all party agreement on climate change. And to be honest, I think that all flowed from that report on flood and coastal defenses from the UK 2003, because, I mean, I can remember when I was in parliament, member of parliament saying, for God's sake, don't put this into the public domain because you're telling the public that my constituency goes underwater before 2080, and they're not going to be too happy with that. And I, I responded by saying, wait a minute, we're, we're putting down the four scenarios, and you're referring to the, the bad scenarios, but if we can get the world to take action and we lead the way, we don't have all of the suffering that, that you see in the, in the bad scenarios. I think by the end of that, we reached that point that led to 2008 uh, agreement in Parliament, with I think only three people voting against on action on climate change, setting up the committee. Uh, and and the, the Climate Change Committee of Parliament, importantly, reports to Parliament, not to the government of the day. And so it holds the government of the day's feet to the fire. And we're, we're very critically at that point now, because while Boris Johnson is making, I think, some very, very important commitments on climate change, he was very good in COP26, at least with his speech, the follow-through doesn't look too good. And the Climate Change Committee of Parliament is now being very critical of that follow-through. And uh, of course, that, that is critically important 
that it reports to Parliament rather than becoming an instrument of the government of the day. Now, interestingly, Scandinavian countries have been coming over to examine how we got this all-party agreement through. It is a critically important pathway that we took, and I think at the time we recognized this. And as you would know, Peter, we did that just in time. 2009, the Copenhagen, uh, if you like, disaster on, on climate change was a time when, when suddenly we had UEA Climate Gate, we suddenly had the fossil fuel lobby in the lead, and people were withdrawing from worrying about climate change. I don't think we would have got that agreement through after that. Ago, you mentioned the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, and this is one of two new projects that you've started up over the last year or two. Can you say a little bit about what the Climate Crisis Advisory Group is, what it intends to produce, and how it fits into uh, international understanding of climate change? Yes. So let me try and encapsulate it. I, I think uh, it's potentially a very important body um, because each of the members, I think, is well recognized within their own country, but also globally, to be a, a world expert on climate change. And so when we, we, have our, we, we meet once a month as a group, we meet once a month uh, for, for public meetings so that we can be examined by the public in these meetings, of course, using Zoom as we are now. And the, and the meetings are then put on a podcast, so we, we set them out. The most important thing we're trying to do is to get across to the public the very important messages. And we, we've just, our last report is setting out in some detail how we can manage a future for humanity. And the important thing, we, we are not only saying these extreme weather events, look at this, was all related to what happened in the Arctic Circle region, and that was all because of the melting of ice over the Arctic Ocean. We're also setting out a strategy for managing that future. So there's the, the big hope that we're doing, setting it out. But that strategy is very challenging. What we're saying is deep and rapid emissions reduction in an ordered fashion is required. But today, if we count methane, as we surely must do as a greenhouse gas, we're not at 420 parts per million. We're well over 500 parts per million in total. This is not a manageable future. Right, so what we believe we have to do is bring greenhouse gases down to something like 350 parts per million or less to see that we create a manageable future, not just to the end of the century, but beyond that. I want to know, for example, that my two-year-old granddaughter will also be able to have grandchildren. Right? So that takes you well beyond uh, the end of this century. We can look back 6,000 years in our history. We have no chance at the moment of looking forward anything like that length of time. So we have to have this deep and rapid emissions reduction knowing that as we do that in an orderly way, we're going to increase the problem. And so the second thing is removing greenhouse gases at scale. 
And the project here at the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge, we're leading two big international teams. One, on the, uh, working in the oceans to see if we can return the oceans to their original state of biodiversity and at the same time capture perhaps tens of billions of tonnes of greenhouse gases a year through the oceans. But the second is, and this is, comes to the third piece of the program, the third R, we have to also refreeze the Arctic. We're, so we're working on several programs to see if we can create a proper way to refreeze the Arctic. And the only point of refreezing the Arctic is we don't want other tipping points. The tipping points are like dominoes. When one goes, the next one is likely to go. And the most frightening tipping point is the uh, meridional uh, over, overturning current, the AMOC. And the more ice melts, the more rapidly the ice melts, the salinity of the ocean water changes, and the AMOC is critically dependent on salinity. We know the AMOC has been weakening over the last 30 to 50 years, and we would not want to see the AMOC going. That would be disastrous for the whole world. That that's, uh, overturning current runs all the way up the Atlantic, but it also runs round into the Indian Ocean. It affects a vast amount of the of the planet in terms of temperatures, in terms of rainfall. It, it really is a big uh, turning point. So if we can refreeze the Arctic, we can buy time to reduce emissions in an orderly fashion, but also to remove greenhouse gases at scale. Let's dive into each of those R's. The first of your three R's was reductions, which, as you say, should remain the top priority in climate change policy. I'd like to ask you a question that I asked in our previous episode. What are the low-hanging fruit, the next opportunities that we should be looking at in terms of emissions reduction? And what are the important high-hanging fruit the ones that we need to build ladders to, if you will, that we need to get to eventually? Yeah, what a good question. So I, I, I don't have several hours to answer your question, but let me just quickly say uh, low-hanging fruit is going to depend from one country to the next, from one region to the next. No country is in the same situation. So there's no simple answer to your question. And I have traveled around the world trying to give advice, particularly in East Africa. Um, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Rwanda, and Rwanda is already in transition. So what do they do? Because their economy has been growing for the last 20 years, an incredible rate of about 7 to 8% a year, the number of cars on the roads is massively increasing. And so what then they've done is to bring in a... Volkswagen electric car factory into the country right, to lead the way forward on electric cars in the center of Africa. And that, that, you know, Volkswagen comes in knowing that they could well export to other countries in Africa from there. Um, let me stay with electrification of road transport first and foremost. We're not going to manage that in any country unless it's understood that one of the common goods that's required for electric vehicles is that there are charging points everywhere available to cars. Uh, 
I'm sitting here talking to you from Cambridge, and I don't have any place to put my car off the road, and, and therefore I cannot have an electric vehicle because I can't charge my car. We have no charging points in Cambridge, or very, very few. And, uh, and so most of us simply can't use electric vehicles. So I think there's got to be a full understanding. It's no good saying after 2030, all ground transport has to be electric if the government doesn't follow through with enabling procedures. And that, that, uh, that enabling procedure is critical. Um, so I think, first of all, ground transport electrifying is, is key. We all know that there's a lot of discussion about hydrogen, and that may also be quite low-hanging fruit. Um, all of these things are not engaging us in new technologies. But let me say, one of the new technologies that has arisen that is very attractive to anyone with an electric vehicle is an intelligent charger. Right? So if you plug your car in every evening to your intelligent charger, it doesn't charge until the price of the electricity is very low, and then it fully charges your car. This is the so-called OHME, OHME device. And it's relatively cheap. The electricity companies, the utilities, like it because this means that they are using up electricity from wind turbines at night uh, that they otherwise couldn't use. So there's a, a, a flattening of the demand through the 24-hour period. Um, so I think there's many, many technologies that emerged to smooth the way for all of these processes. But, you know, one of the things, in contrast to what I said, that every country is different, once one country develops these technologies, it hits the marketplace, and this is the beauty of the market system, and then every country has it, and it becomes extremely cheap. That has already been proven with photovoltaics, with wind turbines, and now it's being proven with electric chargers for electric vehicles. The, the high-hanging fruit <coughs> is going to be the, the emissions of methane, in my view. Uh, methane emissions are rising rapidly now, more rapidly than ever before. And there are many sources of the methane. We know from isotope analysis, and maybe this is a surprise, that one of the major sources of methane is from agriculture, and uh, agriculture in particular, livestock and rice. These are two major methane emitters. And of course, what lies behind this is a very attractive notion that actually the number of the percentage of the world's population that are middle class is rising far more quickly than the rate of population increase. And so middle class people all want to behave like middle class Americans in movies. They want to eat more meat. They want to drive big, fast cars. And so what, what we see is that livestock production around the world has increased far more rapidly than the rate of global population increase. And the net result is we're getting more, more and more methane. But methane emissions from uh, gas leakage, for old coal mines, for example, are responsible for emitting a significant amount of methane. So 
Britain has already shown that a country that was totally dependent on coal still has coal underground from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution is now no longer needing to use coal. But nevertheless, those coal mines are emitting a lot of methane into the air. We need to catch that methane and burn it. We need to convert it with photovoltaic catalysts. And this is one of the problems we're working on here. So there's, there's, there's a whole range of challenges associated with methane. And I, I don't have the answers in the sense that cultural behavior is difficult to change. I, I never eat beef because beef is the, the biggest consumer of, uh, of forest land and it is also the biggest uh, emitter of, of methane alongside uh, pigs, I have to say, I've got to admit. And so the, the, you know, those of us who are brought up as meat eaters, it's quite difficult to shift away from that. Um, I think that's, that's the highest hanging fruit, the methane emissions. And, and we can't abandon it uh, because it's rising so goddamn rapidly now. One of the problems with methane, by the way, and I am critical of the IPCC on this issue. Very seldom do I criticize the IPCC. How should we count methane as the, an equivalent to carbon dioxide? Is it 23 times the effect per molecule? Of course it isn't. That, that is accounting for the very short lifetime in the atmosphere. The half-life is about 10 to 12 years for methane compared with carbon dioxide, hundreds of years. And they feed that half-life in and come out with that 23 years. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, the instantaneous contribution to our temperature is 130 times per molecule. I just wonder whether the fossil fuel industry is responsible for this very, very disproportionately low number they use. Of course, the, if I have the analogy to filling a bath with water and the, and the plug is out, I need to pour a lot more water in than the rate at which it's flowing out of the bucket to see the water level rise. And that is what's happening with methane. But nevertheless, it is happening. And unless we stop the water level rising by slowing down the amount going into the atmosphere, frankly, we're cooked. So I, I think the, the, uh, the problem is partly methane emissions not counted. Everyone says emissions are at 420 parts per million, not everyone, but most people. But count in methane at 130 times and you're well over 500 parts per million. And just 10 years ago, there wasn't a climate scientist who would say we could survive anything more than 450. So I wanted to bring up a, another challenge with the transition to um, a sustainable, low-carbon world, and that is um, the position of countries that are still rapidly developing. You know, their populations are growing quickly, their economies are growing quickly, and their energy demand is growing very quickly. What would you say to those who would like to see an end to development funding for fossil fuel um, power plants and so on. Right. I mean, I, I, this is something that I worked on very closely with the government of Rwanda. And in 2010, we, we produced 
working with every ministry of government in uh, Rwanda. I had a team of eight people working out there, each one in a minister's office for about a year. And we produced their, uh, their policy, which was climate resilience and adaptation to the changes that were going forward. And, and the policy is developed around exactly meeting your point. Their economy growing at 7 to 8% a year meant energy consumption going up. More than that, because this economy growing means the middle class is growing more quickly. They're the group that demand more energy. And the, the idea was to look at all of the natural resources. Rwanda has very little wind but they have a very large amount of sunlight. They're sitting virtually on the equator. And, and so solar photovoltaics ought to be the way forward. Um, they also have in Lake Kivu, which is one of these extraordinarily deep lakes uh, with methane bubbling up, which of course could be very dangerous. They're now mining the methane to create energy to, uh, to to provide electricity onto their grid. So everything that Rwanda is doing is trying to use its local resources to manage the growing energy demand. Um, the, 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 that has to be the right way forward. And by the way, all of the small villages in Africa would cost an enormous sum of money if we're going to run the grid out to all those villages to provide electricity. Whereas renewable energy systems, photovoltaics with, uh, with local batteries, lithium-ion batteries, can very much more cheaply provide electricity into these villages, which is transformational. People having light at night so that kids coming home from school can work at night, so that people can actually read and operate in the way that we are simply uh, accepting as the, the real world. And, uh, and this is transformational, just using renewable energy as a distributed energy source and not having to extend the grid to every village. So I think, I think the answer to your, your very important question is you've got to look at the local situation. Um, the biggest challenge, and Rwanda is relatively easy, they have no gas, they have no coal, they have no oil, right? So their economy benefits by looking at local resources. And that was the key to getting that program of 2010 through the cabinet, that it was not going to slow their rate of growth down, rather it might turn it into an even faster rate of growth. So the problem is those countries that are oil, gas, and uh, uh, coal producers, and where their economy is so heavily dependent on it, and in Africa, there's Nigeria sitting bang in the middle of that problem. So I think that there, for me, there is no solution except Western support for the transition away from fossil fuel usage in their countries. Um, I mean, clearly, these are countries where there are an enormous number of very wealthy people uh, from making finance out of the businesses arising from this uh, oil uh, uh, export capability. But the tax levels on those are very low. This is a global problem. It's a problem, as we know, in this country as well. 
whether it's the Chancellor of the Exchequer's wife or whether it's other people with offshore banking, we know that these very wealthy people, and this is also true in Nigeria, simply don't pay taxes. And so there is a real problem with how these governments can maintain confidence and at the same time find the resources to make the transition. I think this is where the ordered transition amongst nations becomes critical. And the second R um, that your organization is taking on is the issue of removals. Now, there's been some criticism about the, the extent to which um, the scenarios that the IPCC considers for meeting our climate goals rely on carbon dioxide removal. Um, there's, there's a really gigantic amount in some of these scenarios, tens of gigatons of CO2 removal uh, by the end of the century, compared to, well, not very much today. What, what are your thoughts on, on, on the potential for removals and how we should think about their role in the future? Can we rely on them? So I think there's two answers to that. First of all, the the question of of um, the oil, gas, and coal industries taking this as a lifeline that we're going to remove the greenhouse gases. Hooray! And if I talk about removing tens of billions with an enormous ocean project, then people say to me, "Well, goodness." That's the same as the total emissions per annum from India. So India needn't worry because you guys are going to remove the stuff at the rate they're emitting it. Uh, and that it misses the whole point that every ton of greenhouse gas we put up there, we've got to take back down again, in addition to the excess greenhouse gases that are already there. So it is the moral dilemma that many people are talking about. People say to me, goodness, you put out that you can remove uh, greenhouse gases at scale. You're just inviting governments to consider continuing with their oil, gas, and coal programs, companies to consider continuing. And that is that would be disastrous. So I, I think it is a very big challenge, and that is one that we have to face up to, all of us. But the, the second point Two things, I think very important, or three things maybe. Today, we're not at 1.1 degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial level. That's accounting for the, the average over the last 10 years, which is what the IPCC does. But take the last 10 years, draw a straight line, and where are we today? 1.35 degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial level. How long is it going to take before we hit 1.5? Five years? eight years, it's not very long. So 1.5 is a dead duck on that, on that basis. And the response of the IPCC is effectively to say, yeah, but we can get it down again. All right, so we go beyond 1.5, and maybe we even go up to two and a half degrees centigrade, and then we pull it down again. Wait a minute, how does the world survive if all these extreme weather events, if the uh, AMOC uh, collapses, if all of these things happen, we're at the end game. So frankly, this is just not on, which is why I say we have to learn how to refreeze the Arctic to buy time so that we can bring greenhouse gases levels, greenhouse gas levels down to a stable level. And a stable level is, for me, less than 350 parts per million. And uh, I think there are several other people who 
strongly back that, including the entire Climate Crisis Advisory Group. So I think the importance is that the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, we do have a, a, a very, very strong representative of the indigenous communities, Tero Mustanen from northern Finland, on the group. He is a, an extraordinarily good climate scientist, um, and he lives on the permafrost. Uh, we we have representatives from Africa. Every one of those people have agreed that we need the three R program, but every one of them acknowledges the real challenge of the laziness, if you like, in making that transition away from fossil fuels, with the idea that we can recover later by removing greenhouse gases. Now, you also asked me. How can we rely on the removal? And this is a very, very important point. I mean, I, can I just give the one example that really sticks in my craw, and I know it sticks in that of the Sovereign Wealth Fund of, of Norway. They were funding uh, the Ecuadorian government a very healthy sum of money every year um, on the understanding that the forests would not be tampered with. And the Yasuni people living in the forests would therefore be protected with their livelihood. But also we would be protected with all that the forests of Ecuador deliver. And they kept funding this at a very high level. They, they had an excellent agreement with the government that they could monitor that the money was going into education and transport and jobs for the poor and so on. And everything happened accordingly until an oil explorer went into the forests and discovered oil, right? And so the net result is several of the big five countries go in there to recover oil. And they say to the government, no, 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 we, we will have to remove some of the forest. And the government goes back to Norway and says, oh, I'm sorry, but the revenue to the country is enormous. And so therefore, we're going to ask you to increase what you're offering so we can turn the oil companies down. And the Norwegian Wealth Fund said, we can't do that. Half of the Yusuni, for, uh, of the Yusuni people's territory, half of the forest has now gone. And the, re the rest is in danger because there's a real belief that there's oil under the rest of the forest. So I think the, the story there is that the Norwegians were investing in a future that has been destroyed. We have to be extremely careful about carbon capture because that sort of lesson from Ecuador is critical. So I think we need to see that we are capturing carbon dioxide and sequestering it safely. Uh, now, of course, we all want to see the forests of the world uh, not only saved, but also expanded. I'm going to give you a good story here, which is in China. And in, in China, they, they, they have a Lus Plateau, which is in the, the center of a river that goes round like an omega, right? And that's the Lus Plateau in the center. And that's where the uh, Chinese dynasties began. The Han Dynasty was based in that area in central China. 
and it was extremely successful. The economy grew rapidly, and the farmland began to be farmed uh, unsustainably, meaning that the rainfall was high, but the topsoil was all washed away into this river, which was called the Mother River, the Mother of the Han people, was called. It is now called the Yellow River because of the desert sand that is, I say desert sand, it's not a desert, it's a high rainfall area that is washed into that river. And that river doesn't always flow into the ocean, it's blocked up by the desert sand. So the, the government of China 20 years ago decided to try and replant the forests in that area. It's been amazingly successful. Ecologists around the world said this will never work. Uh, there was still a, a, a local population of Han people, and they were paid to plant these forests. And they were also play, paid to plant managed forests. And as a result, they can also farm in this area now. They've got topsoil returning to the area. And so it is quite possible to recover forests is, is what we're learning from, from that area. And I, I've used China as a positive example here, but interestingly, there are many positive examples happening in China. I would say, in contrast to what I said about the United States, that China is doing more on climate change than almost any other country in the world. If we look at the, the utilization of photovoltaics, of wind turbines, of nuclear energy for electricity production, they're, they're doing more than the rest of the world put together. And of course, they've pulled the price of installation of those down dramatically. So I think the China is problematic in the sense that their rapid economic growth means that they have become increasingly dependent on fossil fuels. Now they are plateauing out in their use and they will diminish. It's going to be very interesting to watch how China manages this. We'd like to end on an optimistic note, and that sounds appropriate for this conversation. Sir David King, thanks for joining us on Challenging Climate. Thank you very much, Jesse. Thank you very much, Peter. I very much appreciate what you're doing here. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. And please consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.